Hello, I'm Craig Constantine. And I'm Elliot Hall. Elliot Hall has been described as intense or driven, and at one time had a Tinder profile that said simply, do you think you can keep up? In reality, he's a free-spirited, outdoor-loving thinker who Savinch candidly described as surprisingly loving and smarter than most people are aware. Welcome, Elliot. Thanks, Craig. Now that you've been away from Ninja Warrior for a few years, what are your thoughts, things that you've taken away from that, or things that you'd want to share with the parkour community in large? Mm. Um, I think the biggest thing that I've learned from Ninja Warrior, especially because a lot of people in parkour have heard of some of my more negative experiences with the show, is just that it doesn't matter why somebody shows up. It doesn't matter why they come to a parkour class. It doesn't matter why they come into your gym. Um, there's a pretty major narrative between parkour and Ninja Warrior, where it almost seems like a competitive thing that parkour and, and its practitioners feel underserved by major media outlets. Um, and they see the success of Ninja Warrior and people associate the things that we do with Ninja Warrior. And rightfully so. People say, well, all of our shows haven't worked and we, we don't do Ninja Warrior and we don't. But when somebody shows up to your gym and they want to take a lesson and they ask, where's your warped wall? And people get uppity about it or they say, <laughs> you know, we are parkour, not Ninja Warrior. Or likewise, we are parkour, not gymnastics. It's just like it doesn't matter why somebody shows up. They are there on a part of their journey to improve themselves. Who cares why they're motivated? Yeah, they're there to learn from you. Them to you. And, it, and it brought them through your door. And it doesn't matter if you have the warp wall. You can say to them, hey, we don't do exactly that, but let me show you what we do. And let's, let's show you what it can do for you. You know, because there are a lot of guys who've been, and girls too, have been successful on the show, come from a parkour background. And it's done a lot to get the word parkour out there, despite their best efforts not to let us talk about it. <laughs> um, you know, but that's a whole different topic. When somebody shows up, you know, if somebody, when I was a personal trainer, if somebody shows up, I ask them why they showed up because that matters to me. But if, if it's not the reason I would have showed up at the gym, I'm not saying, oh, sorry, you're not good enough for my training. Right. The reason That's you're crazy. here isn't the right one. It's just like, I understand the intrinsic value of what we're doing. And if you want to take this and try and go make a million dollars from it on Ninja Warrior, that's, that's fine. That's great. I hope you have a good time and I hope you learn something. So I don't normally share my stories on the podcast, but I'm going to let this one in. Um, there was a thing which we affectionately call the Williamsburg Bridge QM Challenge. And when we got up at the Oh, dark 30 hour to leave for that. You were asleep on the floor and had absolutely no interest in joining us. None. Uh, <laughs> None. And up until that moment, I had always thought that um, maybe you were this gung-ho, you know, acceptor of challenges. And now I'm realizing that you have a very particular way that you approach things. And I'm wondering if you could unpack a little bit about your personal training methodology and how you approach thinking about training. I guess this is going to be a little bit of the parkour origin story. It's, it's going to have to cross that road, um, you know, as, as done as that gets in interviews, as often as it's done in interviews. Um, I ran into parkour first through a military fitness forum. Um, I got into it through the idea of using it to complete obstacles and com complete goals, complete missions, that type of um, challenge. And as my interest in it grew... I got a different idea of it. And as I grew, I was really researching into the ideas surrounding physical education through peak athleticism. Um, I became a personal trainer at the age of 19. I went to school to study um, physical education as a pre-athletic training uh, degree. Mm -hmm. And I was really, really interested in understanding how we react to challenge biologically and physiologically. Um, 
you know, there's all, there's also sports psychology. There's all of that. These are kind of the, the things that are the scientific communities that surround our talk of embracing challenge mm-hmm. is, is these are the things that happen. So we have the subjective experience, which is our embracing of challenge. And then we have the objective result, what happens to you. Um, and getting up that early and QMing that far and knowing what that's going to do to my body and the subjective experience of the rest of that day <laughs> and understanding where I want to go with my training, it's, it just doesn't take me there. Um, you know, and I'm, you, you, you talked about earlier that people would describe me as intense or driven. And it's like, absolutely, sometimes, if it's something, frankly, I give a shit about. Um, but, but if I don't, if it's not in line with my goal because I have specific set goals, then, it, then it's not a thing that I'm going to spend the energy on. We have a finite amount of energy. We all do. We, we, we have finite time. And, right. Yeah. And, and so if I want to spend my time training for the enjoyment of my subjective experience, I'm not going to take myself out there and do that. You know, whereas if it was a long hike in the woods that I go all day without food and water, sure, I'd love that. But to go crawl around on the cement in the city in the rain, it, it just wasn't where I was that day. And that's not to say that another day I wouldn't be down to do it. It was just that day. And it changes every day. But um, yeah, I have a particular idea of where I want to go with my training. And I've done enough studying and research to be able to understand the progressive steps that will get me there. I think there's an old children's story about the city mouse versus the country mouse. And it occurs to me that the difference between the quadrupedi challenge across the Williamsburg Bridge versus uh, an all-day walk in the woods with no food uh, or water, that's a perfect example of the difference in the two. And I'm wondering why you're drawn to you know one versus the other and what, what is the value difference that you see in those two approaches? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think that's a really interesting thing and one that has kind of always separated my practice from a lot of other people's is most of what I do is out in nature and not necessarily in the evolve, move, play, Rafe Kelly, move, Nat, mm-hmm. Erwin LaCour type, but it's just where I am. And if we're looking at parkour as an answer to challenges or puzzles or um, things that we put in our play in our way then the challenges in front of me exist here and they're the ones i enjoy um and also when it really gets down to it what's the point of all of it is because we enjoy it this is just happens to be what i enjoy it could be history it could be predisposition um it could just be what i'm used to um when i'm in the city not enjoying myself most of the time. When I'm in the country, I'm enjoying myself. So when I go on a long duration challenge like that, I end up having way more fun in the woods. And when I come home, the feeling that I have is very different than after a day in the city. Um, And the big part about that too is when you're on the flat ground, when you're on the concrete, there begins the idea of repetition. When you're in the woods, there is no repetition. No step is the same. Yeah, trail you know. running versus uh, path running. Yeah, and I don't, I don't pound pavement, man. I don't road run, you know, and I never did. I never grew up doing that. I hate it. Um, it's mind-numbing to me. And so for me, being outside is in and of itself rewarding. So when I do my practice, when I practice my parkour outside, it's, it's doubly rewarding. You know, I'm, I'm interacting with, I'll make a little value statement here, where we should be um, and where we are made to be, where our... 10 fingers and toes and our big monkey brains evolved. And um, that is fulfilling in and of itself. But then also I'm getting stronger. Also I'm flexing my mental muscles, solving problems, you know, and I'm constantly stimulated in that sense and not overstimulated. 
I'm a very auditory person. And man, if we're going to go queue them across the bridge, I'm going to be hearing trucks and cars the entire time. I'm going to be hearing other people. I'm going to be rubbing my hands in their shoe gunk mm-hmm. on the ground. And it's just like, that. that's not my understanding of a good time. And not to take away from anybody's whose it is. We are all here pursuing our own idea. And that's great for you. It's just not me. So in that line of more natural training, what are your thoughts on on footwear? So I've been getting into less and less structure in shoes and more minimalist type footwear. Uh, I know there's a lot of nerves in your feet and, and there's a lot of, some people call it neurological nourishment that can happen through your feet. And, and what do you typically wear just in general? And what are your thoughts on like hiking with hiking shoes versus hiking in thin, you know, Vibram type of shoes? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important thing. Um, you know, like you said, there is all of this this neural nourishment that comes through your feet. And one of the big things I've noticed from doing a lot of running outside is just how aware I am of my feet. Um, in my selection of footwear, changes based on what I'm doing, changes based on the goals. I just came off of a show series 20 days long at the Canadian National Exhibition where I was wishing every day I had thicker shoes just because of the nature of what we were doing. We're doing performance, we're doing shows, we're taking big drops, heavy impact on man-made surface. Um, But when I'm in the woods, there's so much more I feel when I'm in a thin pair of shoes. You know, currently I'm wearing a pair of Merrill uh, trail gloves and they're thin, they're chunky, great grip in the woods on wet rocks and all of that, and that's fantastic. I don't do the majority of my training barefoot, but I have kind of a fun story about a time I was hiking a mountain down in Virginia, and... The way up is super fun, lots of rocks. It's this mountain called Old Rag in Shenandoah National Forest. Um, it's one of the most popular hikes in the United States, I think, actually. Um, but it's really rocky and it's beautiful. And the top is just this granite dome, you know, barely any trees, all these giant boulders, great parkour opportunities. Um, and just really enjoyable, beautiful hike, 360-degree panoramas. But on the way down, you're going back down this really rocky, heavy impact trail. And by the time I got down there, probably about three quarters of the way, my knees were really starting to ache. It's a long day. It's seven miles up, seven miles down. Um, you know, and it's all elevation change. There's not a flat spot in it. And so coming down, I was starting to get sore. And so as I get down towards the bottom, I take my shoes off. And by the time I hit the parking lot at the bottom, my knees don't hurt anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's just kind of a very in-your-face example of, oh, here I'm tired. And, I'm, you know, oh, I'm achy. A lot of it is just the balance of the muscles being stimulated in the way that they're pulling on the and other removing joints. your shoes let you get back to the proprioception input so that suddenly your body could change whatever it was that was causing yeah. the knee pain. Well, and a big part of it too is you're not doing things that without padding would hurt because you, you might still be working through the same movement pattern that would cause pain without padding with a shoe on. But if you get rid of that ability to pad that that's sensory nerve down on your heel, you're not going to drop your heel onto the ground. When you step down off of a rock, you're going to reach first with your right. forefoot, your and foot. you're going to use those extra joints. You've got three joints in your toes. You've got a joint in the middle of your foot, right. your midfoot joint, that doesn't get used when you use a shoe. And then, you know, there's a minor amount of movement through the tailorbones in the back of your foot, mm-hmm. and those aren't getting pulled into play at all when you're wearing a shoe. And so there's so many more shock absorption joints and, you know, that just get used when you take your shoes off. And all those m- muscles get stimulated and that. Oh, that's going to get a little too deep into psychosomatic pain. But that feeling that your brain is getting of, oh, I'm in pain, doesn't get stimulated because things are being used right. You know, and we don't want to go any deeper in that because that's a, that's a hellhole of science <laughs> and neuroscience. But... um. Just just kind of getting into the fact that barefoot is what you're supposed to do. It's where we came from. And 
it's not going to work if we're trying to push 12-foot running precisions onto a metal rail. Um, that would take years to develop, which if that's your goal, that's your goal. But as far as subjective experience goes, man, when I'm doing my performances, I want thicker shoes. I think going even further with this train of thought on feet, there, there's also the issue of how your bones get set. And I've been recently over a couple of years working on trying to sit comfortably in a deep squat just because I think it's a good movement pattern to be able to do. And I'm finding that it's a lot more complicated than just muscular length and, and just normal flexibility. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if people need to reassess their goals for barefoot. Like if you decide, I want to train barefoot, you may have to have go back to how you began moving as a child and yep. realize that your bones and your feet are now set a certain way. Definitely. And I, I think that also kind of ties back into training in nature as well. Um, because if you decide to make that shift, you've got to reassess um, the surfaces you're working with and not necessarily making things smaller, but using more small movements to get the same job done. Um, if, if you're looking to train barefoot or if you're looking to train outside, if you go out and you push your maximum precision, cause you know, Hey man, every time, you know, I can jump 12 feet, uh, it's not going to work out there. Why? Because it moves, it's wet and it's going to break. It's off camber and it's yeah. got a fine texture. That could mean your feet or it could mean the surface you're landing on. You know, you, you've got to take it down and you've got to reassess the situation. And so also kind of the idea of that is, is different is why are you doing what you're doing? What are you trying to get out of it? Um, are, you, are you looking for a healthier body or, an, um, or are you looking to change your style? You know, and both are good experience, all of it, I hope. But just realize the reality of the situation. You could just go walk in the woods for a mile barefoot, and when you come back, your feet are going to hurt. You know, your skin's not tough. You're, the muscles aren't well-developed. You know, you've got these weird uh, motor patterns, patterns right? yeah, that are ingrained from thousands and thousands of hours of doing something shod and maybe also on concrete. If this is new to you, this is changing everything. So you've got to take not just two steps back, but five and, and approach it. You know, and like you were saying, the stuff that you did as, you were, as a child. You know, and realize how that fits in. When I go and teach at uh, these bushcraft school events, um, which is something I'm involved in a lot, is this bushcrafting community. I, I teach a movement class called From the Ground Up. And we start with ground movement and we then work from there to transitions to quadrupedi. And we work from there into low two-footed positions, mm-hmm. bipedal okay. positions, and then to, you know, walking, moving silently, which is especially important in our train of thought, stalking, um, reach, escape, all of that. And then we get into jumping and running. And then we get into, you know, climbing into the trees and then transitioning between trees. And it's kind of that same mentality of just approaching movement in the woods. It's from the ground up. You've got to have a foundation. So I think those who know you know that you really love motorcycles. And I've noticed with a lot of people, um, myself included, who are really into parkour, are also really into fixing things or taking things apart and understanding the nuanced details. And I'm wondering, first of all, how you got into motorcycles and and what your thoughts are and how those two loves sort of dovetail so well. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I got my first motorcycle when I was 17 years old. I had seen this particular Nighthawk 700 that I'm working on right now in a book at the age of 10 or 12. Um, it was a book, The Beginner's Motorcycle Guide. And I read a section on, you know, it, it was printed in the 80s. This bike was new at the time. This is in 1984. And they were saying, you know, here's the top 10 beginner motorcycles. And this was on the list. And for whatever reasons, I was 10 years old. I don't remember the details. But it just stuck in my mind. Iconic, right? I loved the way it looked. I knew it was a good beginner bike. And 
Then one of my best friends bought a motorcycle when, when he was 18. I was a year younger, and I rode it a few times, and I decided, hey, I need to get my own bike. You know, I had ridden dirt bikes on and off and stuff, um, but never, like, really, really into it. So I bought this bike from a guy up in Pennsylvania and fell in love. Um, it was something that I just continued to pursue all over, and I didn't have a big budget. So I started to work on it myself, and I didn't know what I was doing at the time. I needed some experience. This particular bike got ridden for four years, thrown in my parents' garage, and then ignored for the next five or six. So I'm just getting back to it now. But um, it kind of grew from that. And I think the, the big thing that attracts me to working with my hands, whether it's motorcycles, whether it's bushcrafting, um, whether it's building woodworking, I, I kind of do all of this different stuff with my hands, um, is the the understanding of the world around you through the nerves in your hands this is a big thing that in part tactile four too. feedback that yeah physical knowledge we crave that we crave contact contact with the physical world and this is a very intricate process but one that is very understandable when you get into it um i don't think there, there's there's no mystery to being a mechanic um there's no mystery to woodworking there is just getting in touch with a process, embracing that process, and then beginning to understand where you are and just getting familiar. Um, but it's, it's so nourishing mentally. One of the things that I am passionate about is collecting other people's stories because I think having people share something they're passionate about really gives people a glimpse into who you really are. So is there a story you would care to share? Um, maybe the story of why I stopped doing Ninja Warrior. Um, I was filming for my submission video for what would have been my fifth season on American Ninja Warrior. Um, and I had a very, very surprising experience. Um, just went out to a woods um, near where I was staying at the time. It was along a river in Laurel, Maryland. And there, there was an old dam there. You know, this used to be a mill town. And that dam had a tower on the one side of it that's maybe 40 feet tall. And then um, uh, it's a man-made wall. Off to the right-hand side is, is the wall of the dam itself, which is about half the height, about 20 feet. And it was just something I'd messed around on bouldering on before. And man-made walls are great to climb because they've got a lot of big handholds, but they're also interesting because a lot of times, especially with old walls, the, the grout disintegrates and um, makes a lot of sand on all these holes. And I was up there for the day, and I was going to film, and I just set my phone up to, to film this one climbing route, and I just started bouldering up. And I got to a point where I was like, all right, this is high enough. I'm going to exit right out onto that dam wall. And as I start to traverse off to that side, I caught a bad handhold um, with a lot of sand on it. My hand popped, and I'm 25 feet off the ground. And down below me is a boulder field, rocks, ankle breakers, back breakers. I mean, some, some serious stuff. And I started barn door off, and I just said, nope. So I just pushed off the wall. Um, I've got a video of it. I'll have to send it to you. Ended up falling 25 feet. Um, Landed straddling a rock, um, full compression on the landing. My tailbone was probably an inch and a half off of this giant limestone boulder. And I came within an inch and a half of paralyzing myself and walked away absolutely fine. Not a scratch, not an ache, you know. But in the shock that followed as I walked back to the apartment and as I sat there by myself thinking about what the hell was I doing, what happened, what took me there... I got into the idea of why was I filming that? What prompted me to get up into that? What, what was motivating me? And I realized I had put my life on the line for something that I didn't necessarily believe in. 
100%. I had been doing Ninja Warrior for years and years, and it was a big production, and there was good and bad. I met a lot of great people through it. I had good experiences, but then at the same time, you know, we weren't getting paid. We were helping a show that made last year 750-odd million dollars, and we didn't see a penny. Um, you know, I was perpetuating that. Um, I was involved in something that didn't necessarily represent what I wanted to represent, and here I was risking my life to get back on it. Um, and so I kind of just had to balance that, and that was the day I kind of decided, oh, I'm not going to do that for a while. Um, and so I backed away from it. But it, it was just a really interesting thing, because I always talk about analyzing risk and consequence. Um, consequence exists all of the time. Being alive implies the consequence of possible death. <laughs> right, you know, yeah. parkour implies the consequence of possible injury death. Always, you know, a lot of people like to say, oh, parkour is safe. Parkour is not safe. It's not safe. And it will never be safe. We can make good decisions. We right. can manage risk. We can mitigate risk. But it's not safe. And if it was, it'd be boring. You know, like we enjoy that dance. There, there's consequences. It's real, which is the juxtaposition to the majority of things we do in our day-to-day -day life. The reason we don't care about them, the reason we're disenfranchised is because it's not real. If we lose it, that's fine. Oh, I'll keep going. I can still put food in my mouth. I'll still be alive. How many of us have been in a situation where we're facing off with death, where we're facing off with real consequence, where we're facing off with real social consequence? If, if this goes, I lose my job. I can't feed myself. Mostly none of us. And we avoid those places as much as we can. Parkour is our way to play with that. And that's fun because it's as high or low a stakes as you want to make it. You know, but we've got this analogy of risk versus consequence here, and we interact with that daily in parkour. So your decision-making abilities, your technical training abilities, your ability to reiterate a jump again and again and again is your ability to manage and mitigate risk. You know, I went and I took on this climb that always a climb has a consequence of falling, and I thought I could mitigate that risk, and I was wrong because that's the game you're playing, and occasionally you come up wrong. And, man, I walked away from it okay, and that's that. I, I don't know what it is, 15 years of parkour training helped me take a 25-foot drop straddling a boulder, you know, inches away from the goods and the end of my spine. Like, it's just, that, that, was, a, that was a very serious day. Um, but that's something I just always like to talk about is, is this risk versus consequence idea with all things in life. It's the game we're always playing, whether it's social, whether it's physical, whether it's, it's you know, putting food on our table with our jobs or anything like this. We're always playing that game. And so when you can separate that idea and say, well, here are the possible consequences. Here's how I'm going to mitigate the risk. And you can begin to formulate a plan around things, which kind of ties us back into the beginning of being very particular about the way that I train. You know, it's always that analysis of here's possible consequences. They can be good or bad consequences, of course. And do I choose this challenge or yeah. do I move? Or do I move to another one? You know, and so that, that's just kind of my take on, on how we approach challenge how we approach um, life issues, obstacles, actual obstacles, because what we do in parkour is not interaction with actual obstacles. None of those are obstacles. You can go around them. We put them there. It's a challenge. It's our own choice, you know, and it's like, so, so real life obstacles, real life problems, it's the same analysis. And that's one of the fantastic things about parkour is it gives you the tools to manage that you know, so you can approach it with the same mentality as you do these situations that have the consequence of life and death. So, so you, you are more well-equipped. Risk and consequence is an excellent topic. And, and on a more practical note, you're an ambassador for the Bay Area Lyme Foundation. And let's just touch on that because it is a really important topic. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've been working with the Bay Area Lyme Foundation for the last several years. Um, their mission is just to raise awareness of this, you know, bacterial infectious disease. Lyme disease, right. Lyme disease. Um, and be able to create opportunities for research um, to find a workable cure and um, to possibly create a vaccine or something of the sort. You know, that's kind of the science side. Um, what I've been doing with them is just trying to get people aware of the fact that this is a very real disease. It's, it's, it's tough because it's not a visible disease. Um, but it is practically endemic. I'm, absolutely. And well, in a, especially in the region where I yeah, come I from, in Appalachia. Which yeah. is Appalachia. So, and especially there are some places in Western Pennsylvania where they've done tick studies and they find 85 to 95% of the ticks in the area are infected with the bacteria that causes Lyme disease. Um, and I was diagnosed with it when I was 23 years old. I had had it for several years at that point without knowing it um, and just attributed the symptoms that I had to other lifestyle factors. You know, as an athlete, you're always feeling tired. You're always feeling achy. And who would have thought that that but was an actual thing? Paralyzation is not in a whole right. Yeah, and that was, that was exactly what happened to me is I woke up one morning and the left half of my face was paralyzed. Um, it's called Bell's palsy. It's a common symptom of, um, you know, a more long-term infection with Lyme disease when it begins to affect the nervous system. Um, and so speaking of risk and consequences and being selective about the challenges I undertake, as earlier when I said we have a finite amount of energy, is I have a very finite amount of energy. And when I reach that threshold, it's done. I'll, I'll begin to have these weird muscle spasms and cramps. My nervous system just gets fried and gets beat up. And we might go have a training session together. And, you know, you're a few years older than me. And you'll feel it for a few days. And I'll feel it for a week and a half. You know, and I'm supposed to be this this big, strong, machine, great right. machine athlete, but I've got to be really smart about the way I approach things because what do I want to spend my energy on? You know, and what's going to help me grow? I have to be selective. Um, but that's also helped me be very, very intentional and particular about the way that I train so that I can continue to progress with a disease that the majority that puts the majority of people to bed. It kills some people. And specifically with Lyme disease, I'm, I've never actually been tested for it, but there is a test for it. You can simply go and have the blood test done. And as long as it's been long enough, it doesn't, um, it doesn't give you a positive right away. It has to have been in you for a certain period of time before yeah. the blood test is successful. Well, and it's also difficult because the blood test is rated at about 66% accuracy. Compare that to other major diseases, HIV, AIDS, hepatitis, all of these things, 99.9% .9 accuracy. So there is one out of every three chances that you just get a false positive or negative. You just don't know. And it's also, it's a two-tier test. So if you don't come up positive on the first one, they don't run the second one because um, it costs some money. And so it's, it's a tough system. It's not a really functional test. And it also doesn't mean that you're currently producing the antibodies necessary to, to come up positive right. on that. It's a really complicated scenario. And so there are a lot of people, you know, um, the Bay Area Lyme Foundation being one of them and the one that I work with, who are really pushing the research side of things to help people, you know, be able to get access to a better test, a usable cure, um, and just really, really pushing some creative ideas in that direction. Um, but for me on the day-to-day -day level, talking risk and consequence, um, I've just got to be practical about what I do. You know, and know that, oh, okay, this works for me, this doesn't. Keep track of my diet real well. Train like an athlete, which is an important topic for parkour people to, you know, begin to explore. Um, and then manage the symptoms as they do present themselves. For me, it's mostly nervous system based, which comes with some chronically tight muscles and the lower threshold for 
overuse injuries. You know, so a, a lot for me on the day to day is just taking care of myself. And that's why I'm really focused on the subjective experience of a lot of this is how do I make this feel good? Because I don't usually feel good. The majority of the time, in fact, I, I'm in physical pain. So I feel great when I exercise, though. So how can I exercise more often? Because if I do too much, then I can't work out for the rest of the week. So how do I balance it so I can do it every day, so I can enjoy my the feeling of my physical body every day, because it's not something I get. And of course, the final question, three words to describe your practice? Um, I think I'd have to go with break all the rules. That's four, right? <laughs> Just making that, sure. That would be four if you... That's kind of the point. Um, no, but in all seriousness, um, I, I would go, if I was going for a serious answer, I would, I would say strength of character. Um, and that's not just my approach for my parkour practice. That's for most things in day-to-day life. Um, this is an exploration. This is a journey that we're on this life. And um, being able to find the things that you want and being able to make that decision for yourself and then hold to that is what you need to do. Um, I'm not here to have a battle with myself. I'm not here to have a battle with other people. I, I'm here to enjoy this life. And I'm here to enjoy it with the people I surround myself with. And part of that is being able to undertake the challenges that my life presents without turning away from them, approaching them the way that I want to, making that decision, and then living with the consequences of those decisions. That's, that's to me, a strength of character. And that's why I approach parkour the way that I do. It's why I'm particular about my practice. It's, um, it's because I want to learn certain things from it. I want to experience certain aspects of this life that are brought only through challenge, that are brought only through embracing the process of trying to get, as punny as this sounds, from point A to point B in anything, whether it's motorcycle mechanics, whether it's a hike in the woods, or whether it's an actual parkour practice. Um, allowing yourself to be immersed in a process is very, very important for our mental health, for our physical health. And one of the consequences that that turns around is it is a very deep-seated idea of your own self-worth, of a great feeling of self-confidence. And that strength of character is what I'm looking for in almost everything that I do. Thank you very much, Elliot. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thanks, Craig. Thank you for listening. You can go directly to this episode's notes and transcript at moversmindset.com slash 12. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to moversmindset.com where you can support us with any amount of your choosing.